Well, good morning. Happy Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is really the beginning of what we traditionally call the Holy Week. It leads up to Jesus' death, his resurrection, really the climax of the entire story of the Bible. Um, and so I want to encourage you, um, and we're going to talk about kind of the beginning of that week this today, but also I want to encourage you to think about in your missional communities, in your families, um, to be a part of the Good Friday service. Uh, I know probably only a quarter of you were here when Josh announced that uh, a few minutes ago. Um, but on this Friday, uh, you'll have an opportunity to walk through the entire story, um, to reflect, to, um, to read the story together, to pray, um, to take communion together. And so you can do that as families. There'll be children's guides as well. Um, but also maybe think as missional community leaders how you can do that as a, as a missional community and, and actually sign up for a slot. It's, it's going to be an open house style, but we're only going to let a certain amount of people go through at a time so that there's enough space the different stations that you'll be in. Um, So make sure you sign up for that. If you don't sign up, you can still show up, um, but it would help if you actually do. Um, So I want to begin uh, this morning um, from a reading from Luke 19. So if you have your Bible, uh, you can open there. And uh, we'll begin kind of the story of Jesus entering into uh, Jerusalem. So Luke 19, verse 28 says this. And after Jesus said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And as he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, his owners asked them, Why are you untying this colt? And they replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus and threw their cloaks on the colt and put, it on, put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and on glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city, and he wept over it, and said, If you even had known on this day what, you, what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. And they will dash you to the ground, you and your children within its walls. They will not leave one stone on another, because you did not recognize the time of God coming to you. So let me pray for us and then we'll kind of unpack that a little bit. Our Father, thank you um, that you sent Jesus, that we get to read his story, that we get to read your story, that we get to reflect this week of Jesus coming, coming as the King. Father, pray that your spirit Um, would guide our time, that your spirit would teach us, that your spirit would open up our hearts and our minds to believe your truth and to walk in your ways. 
and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now this, uh, this story, this event that I just read is probably one of the most misunderstood events uh, in all time for the people who were actually there that day. The people who are shouting, Hosanna, basically, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And while this is true, this is who Jesus was, Jesus is the Messiah, he is the son of David, he is the long-awaited ruler of Israel, he's the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Um, but the people who were shouting, that, shouting this greatly misunderstood what they were actually excited about. They thought Jesus would, would enter Jerusalem and, and by his mighty works he would take his throne and he would make Israel free from Rome. You can see um, they're cheering as a crowd. They, this crowd has seen Jesus do amazing things. In verse 37, it, it basically it says Jesus has made a, n- a name for himself as a worker of miracles. They're a crowd that remembers these miracles. They're, they remember him healing leprosy with, with just a touch. They've, they remember him making blind people see. They've heard of him seeing the lame actually get up and start walking. They've seen Jesus command spirits, unclean spirits, and actually they obey him and they come out of people and people walk afresh anew. We see they've seen Jesus still the storms, be in charge of nature. They've seen Jesus walk on water. They've seen Jesus take five loaves and a couple of fish and feed thousands of people. And so as, as Jesus is entering Jerusalem, they knew nothing could stop him. They knew that he was powerful. They knew that he was sovereign, that he could just speak and Pilate would perish. The Romans would be scattered. The crowd knew the prophecies about what Isaiah had said about this king. If you open to Isaiah, Isaiah 9 says this. This is what the crowd knew. They knew that the, what this king would be. 9-7 it says, Of the increase of his government and of the peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So in verse 38, when these people are are shouting, Blessed is the name, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They're saying, Jesus is this king. Jesus is not just any king, but the one who is sent, the one who is appointed by the Lord God. That's what they're saying. And they're saying that this is a king who's who's going to establish a universal, never-ending kingdom that's backed up by the zeal of God himself. And they're excited about that. They're excited that Jesus is going to come in and he's going to defeat their oppressors. That they would never have to be oppressed again. That That they would never have to sit under anyone else's kingdom. But they were a little bit misguided. Not in the fact that this is actually who Jesus was, but how Jesus would actually become king. How Jesus would actually set them free. See, no one truly understood in that moment, not even his closest disciples understood how Jesus would actually take his throne. Jesus would take his throne, but he wouldn't do it by defeating the Romans. He would do it by voluntarily suffering and dying and then rising from the dead. And only Jesus saw that coming. And he was very purposeful. And he willingly rides into Jerusalem, allowing this truthful things be said, 
by misguided followers clamoring really for his kingdom. You see, Jesus is like no one else in all of history. No one else in all of history ever has foreknown or foretold and then actually carried out his life. Carried out his life, carried out his death, and carried out his resurrection. You see, if you read, if you read the gospel accounts really leading up to this point, Jesus is a man who knows what's coming. He's a man who, who describes what's coming. He's a man who performs what's coming, all really according to the purposes of Scripture and the things that had been foretold previously. And Jesus was a man who was sent to fulfill those purposes. And he's a man who sets his face to those things that nothing that, that was written about him was not going to be accomplished. And he doesn't turn from the right. He doesn't turn to the left. He doesn't let one prediction that his father made in the Old Testament fall to the ground. And if you fast forward in the story, we see this again. If you remember what Jesus said when Jesus is in the garden and he's praying and they come to arrest him and Peter, one of his disciples, gets out his swords and tries to protect him and cuts off uh, Malchus's ear and Jesus is arrested. And look what Jesus says in Matthew 26. Jesus says this. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? How then will the scriptures be fulfilled which said that it must happen this way? You hear what Jesus is saying here? He's saying, I am carrying out the predictions of my father. I'm governing my life in such a way according to that plan. And I'm sovereignly um, guiding all of these affairs so that it makes sure it actually happens according to God's plan, according to my Father's plans. That's what Jesus is saying. He says the same thing in John chapter 10. In John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18, he says this, I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up. In other words, it may look like uh, to the bystanders, and as Jesus really is just a, a victim now. He's a victim of betrayal, of conspiracy, of, of mob violence, of mock trials, of fickle governors. Um, but what Jesus is saying is here, I'm actually in charge. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down and I take it up. Jesus was, a, was here in complete, utter control in his sovereign sacrifice. Jesus was in charge of when he died, how he died, when he rose from the dead, so that now his kingship might actually be truly understood. No one understood what Jesus was doing during that time. No one understood really until the resurrection. And Palm Sunday is really a day of, of insight into that and a day of misunderstanding. Even, even this word Hosanna that they were shouting, um, I don't think they really understood it. I'm sure that you know that the New Testament was actually written in Greek and the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. And so wherever you see the word Hosanna um, that occurs uh, in the New Testament... It actually comes from the Greek word. Does anyone know what the Greek word for Hosanna is? It's Hosanna. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's actually, actually, all the English translators did was use like English letters to make the sounds of the Greek word, Hosanna. But if you look in the Greek dictionary, you'll find out what it means is that, that actually it's not even a Greek word. 
Actually, the Greek writers actually did the same thing that the English writers did. They actually took a Hebrew phrase and just translated it Hosanna in Greek letters. And so our, so our English word Hosanna actually comes from the Greek word Hosanna, which is actually translated from the Hebrew phrase Hosanna. All right? And so this Hebrew phrase is actually only found one time in the Old Testament. It's in Psalm 118, verse 25, and it says, it really means, save us, please. Just save us, save us. It's a cry for God's help. It's what you would cry when you fall off a cliff or you're, you're, you don't know how to swim and you fall into a pool. Help us, help us. Hosanna, Hosanna. That's really what it means. But the crowd was not yelling, help us, save us. They didn't see their real need. You see, what happened actually to this word is as language um, evolved, something happened to this phrase and the meaning changed over the years. Because what happens in Psalm 118 is immediately following this cry to save us, there's an exclamation that really says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's a cry for help was answered immediately. Almost before it comes out of the psalmist's mouth, the next words come out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so over over the centuries, this phrase has stopped becoming really this cry for help um, in the original language of Jews. Instead, it became this shout of hope or this shout of exclamation. And it used to mean save us, but now became like salvation is here. Salvation has come. Hope is actually arrived. So instead of it being what you used to say when you fell in the pool, it's now what you say as you see the lifeguard swimming towards you. Right? It's, it's now instead of save me, it's like, great, I'm getting saved. Hope is here. It's a joy in the heart, really, when you see the hope of your salvation and you scream it out and you can't keep it in. And so the word had changed from a, from a plea to praise to, to really, I want to say, a, a cry of confidence. And so they were saying, hooray for salvation. It's coming. It's here. Salvation. Hooray for the king. Salvation becomes... Uh, belongs to the king. Here comes our deliverer. Here comes our savior. Salvation belongs to the son of David. He's the Messiah. He's here. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But they really had no idea what they were saying. They were placing their confidence in the wrong salvation. They were in great hope that Jesus would actually change their current situation. That he was going to change their what was going on, but they actually missed their need really to cry for help. The really the need for change that only Jesus could actually bring about. And I wonder, as I was thinking about that this week, how often are we just like that crowd? That we cry out in confidence, but we have we place our misguided hope in God to change our situation rather than confidence in God who's actually saved us from our guilt and our sin and our fear and we actually walk in the truth and the hope of those things instead of what we want to happen in our lives. You see, their insight into, into Jesus gave them some temporary joy, but their misunderstanding actually brought death and destruction. It brought the murder of Jesus a few days later and the destruction of Jerusalem 40 years later. And I want to say it's the same today. A misguided understanding of who Jesus is will always lead to death and destruction. It always will. 
Misunderstanding who Jesus is will always lead to death and destruction. And I know that's not a popular message in our city and in our culture. We want to see love, right? Love, 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 love. That's all Jesus is about. But the other side is actually true as well. It's been true since the beginning of the human story. That rejection and misunderstanding, misunderstanding and guided belief in who God is always leads to death and destruction. I saw this quote this week as I was looking for something else, and it's from Augustine. And Augustine uh, was one of basically the early Christian theologians. He was around in the, in the late 300s, and he was basically teaching and, and leading the church kind of right after the apostles had, had passed on. And he says this, and I think it's really fitting, and I think it's important for us to re- remember in the culture that we actually live in. He says this, If you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, it's not the gospel you believe, but yourself. It's not the gospel you believe, but yourself. I think this is so important for us to understand this because essentially our misguided beliefs about who God is don't change the truth of who He is. But it does set us up as our own gods in our minds. And when we play God, it always leads to death and destruction because we really have no power to repair any brokenness in ourselves or anyone else. And so all we end up with is a bunch of people running around in the city as little gods at war with one another trying to make other people fall to what they want to believe. And it's a futile attempt to have other gods follow you. And it always leads to broken relationships and death and destruction. We need to be clear on the full understanding of what the gospel is. You see, if everyone is God, there will never be peace. There will never be love. And in order for us to actually have that, it won't happen because we'll always be at war with one another. We need the one true God who can only bring peace and He requires a submissive heart and a submissive will to His desires, not our own desires. You see, this crowd was was right on who Jesus was, but they didn't want Him for who He was. They wanted Him for what He could do for them. What the miracles He could perform. The things that He could do to, to obliviate the Romans. And as soon as, they did, as soon as Jesus didn't do what they desired Him to do, they turn on Him in anger and they send Him to the cross. And I want to say it's the same thing we do when Jesus doesn't perform the way we want Him to perform. We get angry and we turn on Him and we run to something else. But here's the kicker. Jesus saw all of this coming. He saw it with them and He sees it now with us. And he sees it in the future. And yet he willingly walked into death and destruction because his love and mercy was actually greater than we would ever understand. His definition of love is way greater than our culture's definition and the world's definition that will ever be said or known. And I want to say he freely offers that love and mercy to any misguided little God like you and me, who actually lay down their kingdom for the reality of His true kingdom. And that's what He offers to this misguided crowd. 
Right? Somebody could say amen a little bit louder than that. <laughs> right? There's another group of people there in this crowd as Jesus rides into Jerusalem who didn't want Jesus as their king. Verse 39 says, Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Basically, they say to Jesus, Tell them what they're saying is not true. They're misguided, and we know they're misguided. We're your leaders. We know you're not the Messiah. We know you're not the one that we've waited for a long time. We know you're not supposed to be praised. This group was in, we're basically in direct opposition to Jesus. They weren't misguided. They actually rejected the fact that he was king. Jesus, Jesus knew what was about to happen. He knew that the Pharisees were going to actually, this group would act, was actually going to appear to actually get the upper hand. That the misguided crowd would turn from him and they would fickly follow uh, their leaders. And that Jesus would be rejected and that he would be crucified. So Jesus knew that was going to happen. But look at how he responds to them. Look at what he tells the Pharisees in verse 40. As they tell him, stop telling people to bless you as a king. He says, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The very stones would cry out. Why? Because Jesus actually deserves praise and he will be praised. Whether you understand this or not, the whole design of the universe is about Jesus being praised. And therefore, if people don't do it, he will see that it actually happens. And he will see that rocks do it instead. In other words, in his sovereignness, he's completely in control. And he will get what he means to get. If we refuse to praise him, the rocks will get the joy of actually praising Jesus. The praise and declaration of who he is will not be thwarted by misguided people. It will not be thwarted by people who reject him. Jesus will be praised. See, this group is, is resistant. They reject him. They're basically, I would see, kind of, you see the crowd and the people are like shouting. They're kind of in the crowd like this. They're just standing there with their arms crossed, with their eyes kind of, their, their whatever that frowned brow thing is. My dad, we were growing, I don't know if that's a word, but I wasn't going to tell this story, but it just came to me, so I think I will. When, when I was growing up, um, whenever we would get in trouble, my, my dad would like make his brow do this. I can't do it, but it would make this little teepee right here. And we would, we would like tell my brother and sisters, like, oh, the teepee's out. Like, you guys got to be careful. You got to watch out. The teepee's out. So, like, I feel like that was the Pharisees that day. They were standing there with the teepee out, right? And they're, like, just kind of got their arms crossed. And they're, they're making sure that they're really kind of in disgust, denying the reality of who Jesus is. And they're going to stop at nothing to ensure um, that he doesn't prove them wrong and actually become king. And they're going to hand him over to be crucified. And as it seems, Jesus has actually failed and that Jesus has no power. But did you hear the good news here? Did you hear that? He can make praise come out of rocks. He can make dead, inanimate objects that have no mouth. I don't know if you've seen a rock with a mouth unless you painted it on there. They don't have any mouth. They're not like animals who like make noises. These are dead inanimate objects that will then speak out and declare him as the rightful king. I want to say, if he has the power to do that, 
He certainly has the power to take rock-hard hearts of misguided people and rock-hard hearts of people who reject him, like you and me, and turn them to hearts who actually sing praises. That's good news. You see, the rejection and persecution and the killing of Jesus is not a failure of Jesus' plan. It's actually the fulfillment of it. Listen to what he says in Luke 18. This is a little bit of time before this. He says, as, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written, basically everything that is planned about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Jesus tells his disciples this is what is going to happen. So the betrayal, the mockery, the shame, the spitting on, the flogging, the murder was planned. And the unbelief and the hostility here are no surprise to Jesus. And in fact, they were actually part of his plan. You see, God had actually visited these people in the person of Jesus Christ. John 1 says, Jesus came to his own and his own received him not. You see, they didn't know at the time of their visitation. And so they stumble over the stumbling stone. They, they reject the cornerstone. The builders reject the cornerstone. They throw it away. And as Jesus sees this, and he sees their sin, and he sees their rebellion, and he sees the misguided people and the people that reject him and their blindness, how does Jesus respond? Verse 41 and 42. And when they drew near to the city, he saw the city, and he wept over it, saying, Would that you had even known this day that things that would make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Jesus sees this and Jesus mourns and he weeps over the foolishness of people not actually seeing him for who he truly is. And these are not just tears of, of these are not tears of sorrow for himself. These are tears of actual mercy. Jesus' mercy tenderly moves and he feels the sorrow of the situation. I want to say Jesus is way more emotionally complex than we actually think he is. And he really feels the sorrow of the situation. There's no doubt that there was a, a deep inner peace that God was in control and that God's wise purposes were, were about to come, pass, come to pass. But, but that doesn't mean that, that Jesus can't cry and mourn over the brokenness of humans. I want to say it's kind of like the tears of a parent who's, who's pleading with a child to say, don't walk into this. I know it's harmful for you. These are, these are tears of mercy, knowing the suffering and rejection of what it means to not follow him. And God grieves. I say sin actually grieves God. Jesus wasn't just mourning over the brokenness of, of, of Jerusalem, but Jesus was actually mourning over the brokenness of all eternity. Eternity past, eternity present, and eternity in the future. And he wept over the sins of all humanity, over your sins and mine. See, the good news is that because of his grief, I want to say we get to actually grieve and mourn as well. 
I'm sure if you think about the painful parts of your life, the painful parts of your story, I am certain sin is involved. Either your own or someone else's, but most likely both. Even in the pain of sickness and death are effects of sin. Sickness and disease and death entered the world because of sin. And God grieves sins. And God grieves the effect of sin in your life. I want to say we get to actually acknowledge that. We get to acknowledge His presence in our sorrow. And we get to invite the Spirit to give you an awareness of the Father in the abuse or the painful parts of your story. And Jesus looks at that and He says, I'm so grieved. And Jesus' heart is actually broken. So as you think about your own story, whether there's, there's pain in it now or in the past, God knows what's happened in your life. He was there, and he grieves it, and Jesus weeps over it as he's coming into Jerusalem. I want to say that as he grieves, Jesus, God grieves over your sin, it frees us to grieve over our sin as well. The Bible says in Matthew 4 that blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Are you actually interested in being comforted? Are you interested in the comfort of the Spirit? God is saying there's actually an invitation to actually grieve and mourn so that you can receive comfort from the Spirit. That, all th- that although Jesus um, was, was all throughout time, and as we see Jesus' time on earth, we see Jesus actually ministered to by the Spirit. And if you look through Jesus' story, that often happens where it's, it's spoken about after Jesus goes through some hard part in his life. The Spirit comes and ministers to him. The Spirit comes and comforts the darkest, broken areas of life. And Jesus responds here to this misunderstanding and this rejection of who he is with a merciful sorrow as he weeps over our sins. One last thing I want to look at real quickly. I want you to understand here that as Jesus rides in as the king, Jesus doesn't just ride in as a king. He rides in as a betrothed king, as an engaged king, as a soon-to-be-married king. His betrothed bride is the people of God, the people who actually trust him, elect from every nation, the, the church, God's people as he's collecting from all eternity. And as Jesus came and rode in on that donkey into Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, he came in to ride for his bride. He came in to die, really to to pay the dowry, as it were. With his own blood, Jesus is going to pay the price for his bride. The good news is that Revelation actually tells us that Jesus will ride in again a second time. He's not going to ride in on a donkey a second time. He's actually going to ride in on a white stallion to marry her and to take her in and to make her, take her into his home to be a part of his family for all eternity to live in joy and love forever and ever. That's good news. Ephesians 5 says this, A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Basically, there's the price that he paid, that he might sanctify her so that he might present the church himself in splendor without spot, wrinkle, or any such thing. You see, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem and they asked, where is the one who's born king of the Jews? Wise men came looking for the king. Before Jesus' birth, an angel came to Mary and said, the Lord will give you a child and his throne will be the father of David's and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. He will be the king. When Philip brought his brother Nathaniel to see Jesus, really at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Nathaniel says this, he says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And as Jesus walks around and as he teaches, he speaks about the kingdom of God. And now he's riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday where he's charged by his enemies for not really paying tribute to Caesar because they're saying Caesar is the true king. And when Jesus is, is questioned by Pilate, is he the king? What happens? Pilate crucifies him under the inscription over his head, Jesus, King of the Jews. And as Jesus rises from the dead, and as Jesus ascends to heaven, he took his, his throne on the right hand of God. And now he rules as king over all, until all enemies are put under his feet. Then may happen soon, that he will come back, and he will be made known as king to the entire universe. Whether you understand that, whether you're misguided about it, or whether you reject it, he will make known to everyone, our co-workers, our neighbors, our friends, our kids, our city, everyone in this world who's trying to play king will understand and truly find out that he is actually the king over all kings. And Revelations tells us that when he returns, every nation, every tongue will acknowledge him that he actually is the king of kings and lord of lords, and he will actually rule and reign forever. You see, Jesus came as the king, but he came after his bride. And nothing was going to stop him. Nothing was going to stop him from accomplishing that purpose. Not misguided people, not rejections of who he was, not death, Nothing. He was purposeful. He was intentionally riding in on a donkey to claim you and me as his own. And that's really good news. And it's good news that we get to declare. We get to declare his power. That we get to just, we get to declare, yes, I am in need. Save me, Hosanna. But yes, I am also Hosanna. Thank you. There's hope. And there's confidence in actually the king. He said, that's the good news we get to declare now that his power, his dominion, his glory, his praise, his kingdom will never end so that the rocks don't have to do it. Jesus is the one true king. And he makes that known as he walks into, sorry, as he rides into Jerusalem that day. And I want to call us to not live misguided lives declaring something that's true, but looking for some other result from God. I want to also call us to not live a life rejecting the truth of Jesus' kingdom. Jesus is the perfect king. The king who 
finds mercy and whose mercy actually covers all of our rejection. And so it doesn't matter where you are today, whether you are misguided in understanding who Jesus is, whether you've rejected him, or maybe you've accepted him, but you're still living a misguided life. Jesus' mercy covers all of those things. And we get to find our hope in him and his kingdom today. I want to call us to be people that actually live that out, who understand it, and actually declare that in the city. It's a city that needs those things because everyone else in the city who doesn't understand what I just talked about is actually running around as their own little God trying to make their own kingdom. And it's going to lead to death and destruction. And we have the good news of the hope and confidence that we have a God who can save us from our place of need and move us to a place of hope and confidence in what he has already accomplished on the cross. So, Father, we thank you that Jesus is the king. Father, we thank you that, um, that despite our misunderstanding of you, that despite our rejection of you, you mercy and died so that we might have hope. Father, that we be people that declare and sing your praises, that we be people that live a life not looking for what you can provide for us, but actually truly loving and falling in love with you yourself. That we would desire you above anything else you could do for us because you've already accomplished everything that we need in the person of Jesus. Father, we thank you that we get to begin this Holy Week and we get to remember um, the week of leading up to that great hope that we now have. So, Father, I pray that we be people um, that declare that truth. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.